Welcome to the Tingo Investing Podcast, where we help you make a better investment and retirement portfolio. We're here to help whether you are a professional investor or a beginning investor, because we believe when everybody is better off, we will love each other even more. So come join and listen to our podcast that is unlike any other financial podcast you've listened to. Welcome, Tingo Podcast listeners. Today, I am honored to have Samir Habel, who's the co-founder and CEO of Fingage on our platform. And Fingage is a platform that helps you make better investment decisions for our retirement portfolios or any portfolio you may have in general. And previous to Fingage, Samir was at Franklin Templeton Investments, where he led a team of individuals to help refine our decisions when we're constructing a portfolio using a variety of strategies. Samir, welcome to the Tingo Podcast. To start... As an individual, I do have to say, when I first started making money and my employer gave me all these plans, I didn't know what to do. And part of it was, what is a traditional IRA? What is a Roth IRA? What is a 401k? What are pensions? What are the difference of all of these vehicles? Yes. So let me give you an overview of these different retirement vehicles. And just bear in mind that, you know, our conversation is not tax advice, is not individual investment advice, it's just a high level overview to help people at least determine which is more relevant to them. And then they can obviously seek a little bit more details, if that's okay. Yeah, let's get that disclaimer in, everybody. Uh, Make sure you (laughs) fully understand that. (laughs) Good. So let's start with pensions, right? The one thing to remember about pensions and that differentiates them from other retirement vehicles that you mentioned is that with a pension, it's generally offered by an employer to an employee, and the money that goes into the pension is always made by the employer. That's a very clear distinction. So you could be working for a firm that's offering a pension, and that firm is taking money from its own profits, and they put it in the pension to provide you with a certain percentage of your salary at retirement, there's a formula where depending on how long you work with them, you accrue benefits, etc. But it can also be a pension for you as an individual. So you could own your own business and you're self-employed. You can also start something called SEP, Simplified Employee Pension. But the same kind of theme applies. Even if it's an SEP, you have that pension through the employer, which is that little company that you are the the boss of, and then the contributions you make into your own retirements have to come out of the profits of the company. So you can't say, well, my company this year made no profits, but I have a lot of savings on the side, so I'm going to put money into my own pension. You, You just can't do that. They have to come from the employer to the employee. That's an important distinction. So a question on pensions, by the way, like I remember in 08, you saw a lot of, uh, you know, for example, like airlines and other industries that were struggling, renegotiate pensions and that type of thing. My question has always been, you know, let's say, you know, not the SCP, but let's say you're part of a company and they give you a pension. What happens if that company claims bankruptcy? So it's a very complicated subject because sometimes the assets of the company that declared bankruptcy might be claimed by the pension. It's, it's, it's really a complicated subject with a lot of minutiae in it. But that's a great point, which is that just because your firm has a pension, you can't just 
assume that it will always be there because in addition to what you mentioned, which is a firm going bankrupt and having trouble, you could be in a firm that's still doing very well and they could take a decision that they will freeze the uh, pension. So new employees will not be able to join the pension. And uh, in some cases, existing employees who are in the pension, they might say, if you're above a certain age, all continues as normal. If you're young, uh, we will stop your benefits and then you'll just be dependent on an alternative like a 401k plan. So just having a pension should not make anybody feel like they shouldn't be looking at how to save for retirement in a proactive way. I guess the difference between a pension and the other type of retirement accounts is that a pension is more the employer takes the initiative more so than the individual. Is that fair to say? That's right. And the employer generally um, has a well-defined benefits to you. That's why one of the common words you see thrown around when people talk about 401ks versus pensions is defined benefits, defined contributions. And that's because in a pension, what you are told by the employer is, here's the rule, if you work for that many years and if your salary is this and that, then the rule will say you will get this much money when you retire. So the benefits are defined. And the employer is taking the risk of how to meet those obligations. So um, if you hit retirement, the market is not doing well, the employer doesn't come to you and say, hey, Rishi, I'm sorry, the market is down this year. We're not going to be able to pay you that retirement benefit that we put in the formula and the rule. They actually have to come up with it. And sometimes that means the firm will have to dip into its own profits from the regular operation of the business to supplement the shortfall that has come due to the market movement. When you look at everything else, traditional IRA or over IRA, 401k, and, and you name it, as long as it's not a pension, it's called defined contribution because the benefit that you are going to get is not fixed, is not well-defined, is not known ahead of time. What is defined is what you contribute. And then what you make in retirement is a function of how well you invested, how long you've invested, and so on. So that, I guess that's the main difference here is like what you said earlier is that these other retirement vehicles besides a pension is a lot more proactive on the individual. And I have to be honest, like maybe it's because I've been in a volatile industry, whether it's finance or I've worked for smaller companies, but I haven't heard of too many companies these days even paying a pension or having a pension plan. Are we? Is that like a general trend where you're not seeing too many companies offer that anymore? That's right. It's becoming less and less common to find a firm that offers a pension. And many other firms that do have pensions um, have so, uh, quote unquote, froze the pensions. So they're not open to new employees. Um, you still find uh, pensions um, on, the, um, uh, on, on the public side, not on the private side. So if you're working for a state, like let's say state of California, as a public employee, you do have um, a pension, but you're right, it's becoming less and less common. What are the plans typically offered to individuals who don't have a pension or who have to do it themselves? If you don't have a, a pension, or you do, in general, the common thing today is a 401k plan. And that's also a plan offered by the employer. However, you are in charge of making contributions, you're in charge of making decisions about how to invest your money, and there is no guaranteed income at retirement. Now, the interesting thing is, just like a pension, these contributions that you put in a 401k plan are tax deductible, or you can look at them as pre-tax. So the employer takes the money from your income, puts it in that 401k plan, and then they calculate your tax. 
And so there is a big advantage to investing in a 401k, and it comes from the fact that you put the money pre-tax, the money grows tax-free while you're making those contributions. So let's make things simple. Let's assume you had a tax bracket of 25%. Because you're not paying that tax, you're effectively putting more money, uh, you're keeping more money. So if you took $100 away from your paycheck and you put it in the 401k plan, your take-home pay does not go down by $100. It goes down by less than that because your tax bill comes down. And so there's a big advantage to contributing to 401k plan versus saying, I don't want to worry about it. I'll put my money in my own savings account or in my own brokerage account. Um, there's generally a big advantage to investing in a 401k plan. Now, there is a limit per year, which is for 2018, 18,500. If you are under 55 years old, and if you're 55 years old or older, you get to put up to $24,500 per year. Now, the interesting thing is, because you put the money today tax-free, when you withdraw the money in retirement, you will be taxed at the ordinary income. As I said earlier, the advantage is the money grows tax-free. And in many cases, an individual tax bracket tends to be lower when in retirement than when he is young and in his prime earning power. Well, I mean, that makes sense because when you're older and if you're retired, your income is essentially zero, right? Um, well, your income from a salary, yes, is zero. But, you know, the money you pull out of the 401k counts as a regular income income and you get taxed on it. But yes, it, it's, it's, it should be lower because, as you said, when you're young, you're making enough money to live on and to save. When you are in retirement, you're not making that money. You're just pulling out of your savings enough to live on. And that difference is why your tax bracket should be lower in retirement. Uh, so yeah, for most people, it's probably going to make sense to get taxed when you're a bit older than when you're uh, younger. So that, that explains 401k. But I also hear uh, IRA thrown around, and I've heard there's a traditional IRA and a Roth IRA. So first of all, what is an IRA? What are the different kinds, and how does that differ from a 401k? You know, there's one more thing I do want to say about 401ks before I jump to traditional IRAs um, and, and Roth IRAs and all of that. The thing I want to say is, you know, we said that the 401k is typically offered by an employer, but just like we said with pensions, you could be an individual, you have your own uh, a legal entity that you're working for as a self-employed person, you can also start a 401k for yourselves. They call it in the industry, they refer to it as solo K, you know, solo being just one person. But for all intent and purposes, it is a uh, 401k um, that you can have. And in fact, in a solo K, you can contribute much more than 18,500. The limit that you can put pre-tax is higher than that. Um, so just wanted to put that out. And then one more thing about 401ks, which is you have a 401k, you're working for employer X. And as you know, Rishi, these days, you don't stay your whole life with the same employer, right? No, I mean, I've changed jobs yeah. every four years. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so for example, y your first job, you had a 401k, you moved to the next one, you had another 401k. So you could get to your fifth job and say, oh boy. I have four different 401ks, four different institutions. I, I want to put these in one place. You can actually move that money into a traditional IRA. They call it rollover IRA, which means you roll that money from these 401ks into an IRA. So what's an IRA? It's an individual retirement account. 
and has a lot of things that make it similar to 401k, which is the money that you contribute into it is also pre-tax money. You don't get taxed on it. Is that the difference between traditional and Roth? So no, so the, the Roth, now we come to something very interesting, which is this. A common theme with the traditional IRA, with the pension or the 401k is the money that you contribute towards your retirement is put in before taxes. When you collect the money in retirement, you pay taxes on it. Roth is the other way around. You can open a Roth today, you put money in it, it's not pre-tax. So if you put ten, five thousand dollars $5,000, that is not going to go onto your tax filing at the end of the year to say, listen, I put $10,000, give me the tax back on that amount. No, you invest in it the same way you put money into a savings account, into a brokerage account. But a Roth IRA, take distributions from it in retirement, you do not pay taxes because you already paid the taxes when you made the, the contribution. I think a theme here to, to keep in mind uh, is you don't pay taxes twice. If you didn't pay when you made the contribution, you will pay when you pull the money out in retirement. And if you paid the tax on the money you put into the account, as in the case of Roth IRA, you don't pay again when you pull the money out. And yeah, this differs than like a typical brokerage account where you put in after tax dollars, you know, you take whatever money you may have in your savings, which you've gotten from your job, which you pay taxes on. And then as those investments grow and you cash out, you have to pay a capital gains tax or you have yes. to pay a dividend. You have to pay uh, taxes on the dividends. But with these retirement vehicles, what you're saying is you only pay tax at the beginning or you pay tax at the end. That's right. I mean, that's helpful. I mean, that's, you know, I just hear all these terms thrown all around and it's, it can get very confusing. And, uh, you know, frankly, this has been super helpful in delineating them. So let's go on to the next question. All right, Samir, so you've told us all this information. Uh, what is your background? How did you get into this space? And why do you know so much about this? Uh, <laughs> good question. <laughs> um, you know, I definitely uh, uh, wouldn't consider myself the ultimate expert. I know a lot about the space, but I'm also always learning, always looking for ways to make the investment better. But I'll tell you my background and why I'm, I'm passionate about this. I started 19 years ago at Mellon Capital, a subsidiary of the Bank of New York Mellon, and I was in the quantitative asset allocation research team. What does that mean? Asset allocation is about helping you figure out if you should have equities, fixed income, which like bonds, cash. If you're investing internationally, should you do something about the currency, the foreign currency? And it's not about picking individual stocks. So asset allocation is not about should I buy Microsoft or should I buy Oracle? And it's more about should I have U.S. equities or should I invest internationally? And the quantitative part is that we did not do the work based on opinions or based on personal judgment. It was more driven by data, more driven by facts. And that's actually the reason I do what I do today, which is that I got a very good training in quantitative investment and the asset allocation is really what you need to do today when you're looking at retirement is how should I invest the money? Not this stock versus that stock, but how much equity should I have in my portfolio? How much risk should I take? And so, so my work at um, Mellon Cap, where I worked for 10 years, gave me that very good background. But there's something also I want to touch on, which is that the contrast between that very first job and my next job is one of the biggest reasons why I started Fingage. After 10 years, 
I moved to um, Franklin Templeton, a firm known for uh, servicing the retail clients. While my first job, the strategies I worked on were for pension plans. One of the things that will strike you as a very big difference is the institutional clients, the pension plans, are uh, very concerned about cost reaching. They, they look very carefully about the cost of the investment. They have the resources and the knowledge to evaluate what you are doing for them. And they're always concerned about how do we make sure our assets will allow us to pay the benefits to the retirees, right? So they want to make sure the money they're putting in the pension plan is enough to pay the retirees. Now, you look at the retail side, you as an investor, you go and speak to a financial advisor and he asks you how you feel about taking risk. And then if you tell him, I like to take a lot of risk, he gives you a risky product. And if you tell him, I really don't want to take risk, he might give you a defensive product. And the fees in the retail space, on average, on average, obviously there are some really cheap products and really good products, but on average, the fees are much higher than what a pension pays for the same product. Yeah. And just to be and, clear, what do you mean by retail versus institutional? So an institution is the pension plan of a large let's say, um, company in the United States where the employees will receive benefits when they retire based on their salary. And so that firm has a big pension. That's, an, it's, that's what you would call an institutional investor. So it's like a financial institution, someone that maybe has hundreds of millions of dollars, a billion dollars, like a big that's company. That's right. So it's just people who have a lot more money than you or, 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 or me or, 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 or the average investor. But it's very interesting. It, what's very interesting to me was that you as an individual investor should be doing the same kind of thing that is done for a collection of investors, right? I mean, the pension is money for, let's say, 100 employees, and we do something that we think is the right way. Why would we do something different when it's one employee at a time? Why shouldn't it be the same? Just because there's a hundred of you together, why would we do things differently? Well, I know I don't have the money to hire a team of investment professionals to analyze every investment like an institution might. So I know there's that, but you know, how do we, that seems like a hard problem to solve because there are hundreds of millions of us and there are probably only a few institutional clients, right? But, but that's where technology should come into place. And that's exactly why we started Fingage because we felt the, that large institutional investor, he does not have to fill a survey to talk about how he feels about the market. And so now you could say, let's get this technology, this great advancements we've done in the country in terms of computation capabilities, uh, technology tools, to bring that same answer, that same good product to the average investor and not have to tell them, Hey, buddy, how do you feel about the market? Because you have a different job in general than investing. You could be a doctor, you could be a carpenter. Um, you're not watching the markets. You don't know how you should invest and we shouldn't expect you to know. So why don't we do a better job for you? And that's the thing that kind of made me uh, start to engage because I thought that technology today should allow us to give everybody the same good quality product 
we did for an institutional investor. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. If I'm about to go under for surgery. I don't want my surgeon checking his phone, checking markets right before I go under, right? Like that's not, that should be what they're focusing on. So I, I, you know, I'm a firm believer in that too. I think, you know, what's a sad reality is that in a capitalist country, markets are important to understand, yet we don't teach it in our schools, right? We teach English, science and everything. But if you live in a country that has free markets in a capitalist country, you have to know how markets work in order to sort of function and be a part of the system, right? Especially as, you know, we, we start making money and as, as we get older and people worry about social security, whether it'll be around for when we retire. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. And it's awesome what you guys are doing. But, you know, we actually haven't even gone into what Fingage is. And I really want people to know about your platform. So, you know, can you give us a high level interview of what Fingage does exactly? Yeah. So Fingage will help you manage your 401k. And the thing about why we, we do that is you as a employee of a firm or a self-employed person that opened his own or her own 401k, you have a lot of funds to invest in, but how do you choose? What is the right fund to invest in? What's the right combination of funds? And how do you know if what you have saved so far and the rate at which you're putting money aside is a good rate that should give you financial security? Those are not easy questions to answer for everybody. And even if you're sophisticated enough to read about the market and understand everything, it takes time to do that. And so how do we automate this whole process? And that's what Fingage does. Fingage is a service added to your 401k plan that allows the person who is invested in the 401k plan to provide very, very simple information, which most often than not is available in the plan and you don't need to answer any questions. But the information is how old are you and when you want to retire, right? You think that should be an important part of the of the decision-making process. Are you gonna work, work a year or work 20 more years? Next question is, how much money you already have and what's your salary? Uh, that's, I guess, two questions. <laughs> and, then, and then the last question is, how much are you saving? Based on this information alone, we create the best portfolio of funds for you as an employee using funds available on your 401k platform. And we'll help you invest it. We'll monitor your portfolio and we'll rebalance it for you over time. And what we will do that's unique is that we will, over time, as you get older, as you approach retirement, or as your financial situation changes, we will automatically change that portfolio for you. So it's always an optimal investment for your current financial situation. So what you're telling me is like, say I'm 30 years old, I have 20,000 in, in my retirement account, and let's say I make 100,000 a year. Your platform will tell me how much I need to put in retirement and whether to put it in stocks or bonds. It'll tell me how much I need to put away in order to have my retirement goals met. So yes, but one, one thing I want to clarify is we cannot tell you how much you should put away uh, because it's a very much a personal decision, but we help you figure it out. Meaning we give you a very simple tool where you just kind of slide one little bar that shows how much you're putting away and then you'll see how much your money is likely to last you to a certain age so you'll see okay i'm putting six percent aside and i've already committed i want to work until i'm 69. Uh, based on what we show you it looks like you're gonna run out of money at age 80. then you could decide you know what i'm gonna try and put seven percent let me see what that means 
you put 7% away, you might say, you might see, okay, now the money will last me until 85. I'm happy with that. Or I need to put more, or maybe I cannot put enough this year. I'll put less, but I can understand now why I should put money more. So I should more money. So next year I will put more money. So we give you the tool to figure it out. Uh, without asking you a ton of questions, it's just very simple. When you want, when do you want to retire, and um, how much are you saving today? How much money you have, and that's it. You can figure out if you are on track, if you're likely to be on track at retirement, and what is it? What is it that you could do to improve your chances of reaching financial security? You know, I, I kind of like that. I kind of like not being told exactly what to do. I also don't like giving that much information. And I, I know it's because I've seen the tool on your website. It is a sliding bar and you can see um, as you slide the bar, how much of your portfolio should shift to different assets, like whether fixed income, equities, what kind of equities, that type of thing. And it'll tell you the consequence or benefits of the decisions you make graphically, like in a nice image, which I really appreciate. Like you said, for example, if I put 6% versus 7%, what does that mean in hard numbers? Like, does that mean I'll have enough money if I withdraw a certain amount? And will I, if I live to be 100, will I have enough money? I, I, I really like the tool graphically, and that's actually why I asked you to come on the show to tell about your product, because I just think it'll help so many people. And as my listeners know, I only, uh, I bring so few people on the show because I, I always want everyone to, you know, they have to pass my internal test of the individuals themselves having integrity, their product having integrity, their their founders just being there to help. And you know what really struck me is your background at, at FT, at Franklin Templeton, at Mellon, really does gives you the experience to create this automated advice product in a in a way to help people better allocate their portfolios and i love that you're using technology to solve the issue of scale and what i mean by that is yeah you know if you had one or two retail clients myself and maybe my friend here it wouldn't make sense to do this business but if you can reach the mass audience which you're trying to do you can reduce the cost you can make these tools accessible to everyone and i, and I think it's phenomenal what you're doing so you know i'm really glad that you could take the time to do this. And I do want to jump into the next question here is that you, you mentioned that you can help people decide how to allocate their money. And when I went on your website, I saw that you had a pre-selected, pre-filtered list of funds on your site that you sort of encourage people to direct money to. Now I have to ask, looking at those funds, they were pretty reputable funds. I think I can kind of understand why you chose the ones you did, but can you share some of your secret sauce about why you chose those funds? And you know, maybe there's some checks people can take internally if their financial advisor gives them. Maybe they can apply some of your same metrics to help. Well, that's a good question. So when we are on a 401k plan, we give you the investment advice and we when we manage your portfolio using the funds that are on the 401k because as you know Rishi your employer chooses the funds on the 401k and as an employee you cannot change sometimes that. they're like really bad funds and annoying and you're like why do I have to choose between these awful <laughs> funds sometimes <laughs> that's true sometimes they can be not so good funds but but hopefully that can be remedied with a good discussion with the employer. Um, but what we've shown today on the website is you come in, you're looking to get general advice. What would be a good fund for you to invest in? So we put a selection of funds that we think is pretty good. Obviously, if we are on a 401k plan, as I said, we will use the funds on that plan. So the funds that we've selected had to meet a number of uh, benchmarks for us. One of them is we want the funds to obviously be cheap. As you know, some funds charge a good, per, very high percentage of the assets to manage the fund and they have uh, loads up front. They'll say, when you first invest, we'll take 5% of the money. So if you put 100 bucks, 
only 95 gets invested and that $5 goes to pay the person who told you to buy the fund, the advisor. We just don't like any of that. And we look for funds that over time, as they're being managed by that advisor, by the manager, the manager is not charging a high fee. So low cost, low cost is the key. I have to say, I think one of my earlier podcast episodes, I just go on a tirade against these load fees because for those of you who have a financial advisor, you know, your financial advisor may try to justify the load fee and a load fee, you know, front load is that they take that 5% upfront, uh, back end is where they take it at the end when you withdraw and it's a huge chunk. And they'll say, you know, your financial advisor will give some excuse like, oh, we charge a high load fee, but after that, our expense ratio is less than others. I have yet to find a fund that charges a load fee that actually is worth putting your money into, frankly. <laughs> so that's a great point. Cost is a big deal. It makes a big difference if you are paying these fees. It'll, it'll really be a big hurdle for you to overcome in the long term. So we avoid that. Yeah, exactly. And don't fall for that financial advisor saying, oh, it's a high load fee, but then we charge less. No, just walk out of the office. I know that's like really harsh, but just walk out and go to a different financial advisor, in my opinion. Um, so, so, and, and I, I want to touch a little bit on this on this thing, but let me go through the remaining uh, the remaining benchmarks you want the fund to meet. The other one is it has to track pretty well the asset class. Meaning, if we if you are buying a fund to give you uh, exposure to the U.S. equity market, you wanna you wanna grow your money the way the U.S. equity market is growing. You want a fund that doesn't deviate too much from the U.S. equity market because the worst thing that could happen is. You put your money in the fund, you're thinking you're going to be getting the same thing as the U.S. equity market, but then you find out that the manager has been doing all kinds of interesting things. Maybe some years he added value, but maybe other years he will distract val detract value, and then you will not keep up with the market. Ideally, what you get is uh, a fund that tracks the asset class that the manager said they are going to invest in. And that's something we look at carefully. A third benchmark we want to see the fund do is have good liquidity. You want a fund where if you decided to pull your money out, um, it's going to be very easy for that trade to happen, for the assets that need to be liquidated to be sold. You want to be able to pull the money easily and then invest back again easily. So we look for liquidity. And we look for the manager to have been doing this for long enough period of time to give us confidence that they know what they're doing, they have good processes, they're, uh, they're, they have a good reputation doing that. And so this is how we've selected this number of funds to give people an idea how they could construct something on their own, if they were building their own investment in an IRA account, or if they were looking at our recommendation and saying, let me see how I could do the same using my 401k. So it's just representative funds that are cheap, effective at providing the investment that they said they will provide. They have good liquidity. They have a long history and managed by reputable asset managers. You know, I think something for our listeners is that if you were to go on Fingage, I think even before you can even get the you know, your money involved, I think the tools of, of the slider to see how much you should allocate and what that means for your retirement, and also the ability to see whether those funds sort of match your, your, uh, your litmus test, Samaras, are, are just two incredibly powerful tools that I think almost every listener should just go onto your site just to explore and make sure that they're, you know, they, they fit because those those quantitative measures and that those qualitative measures you've just described are refined from your decades of experience, right? I take it? That's right. 
So it's essentially capturing all that experience you've had over the years and constraining it and and filtering it down for people. So you know you described like these institutional funds have their due diligence staff. They have staff that just goes in, runs due diligence, and the everyday retail person like myself doesn't have the money or the time to pull something like that off. But that's where you're coming in right now. Just high level, what differentiates Fingage from the other players in the robo advising space or 401k space? What I mean by that is, you know, some of us have heard of Betterment. Charles Schwab has automated automated service now. What makes Fingage one of the things different? that um, I like to um, use as analogy to describe the typical robo is that a typical robo advisor has brought in a very good online interface but the process behind the interface is the same one that's been around for over 60 years, which is, which is you are asked by the advisor how you feel about taking risk. So they put you through a survey. What do you do if the market goes down 10%? Would you buy more? Would you sell? Or would you stay put and do nothing? How do you feel about the volatility in the market? Are you more concerned about appreciation of assets or about preserve an asset. So there's a survey that's trying to determine how you feel about the market. That's what people used to do from 60 years until now. And most robos are just doing the same thing, but they're doing it online. So there's an interface online that asks you those same questions. And then at the end of that, you receive a ranking. So you might be a five, I might be a six. So they say, oh, Samer is a six. He likes to take risk. So he gets the pre-made portfolio at associated with six and you get the one associated with five so maybe maybe also another way to to think of it is like when you go to buy pre-made clothes there is small medium large and extra large and you're going to get one of those four sizes what we do differently is to say why should i or rishi answer a survey uh, to determine how much risk i should take why don't the robo do the analysis based on my actual financial situation to tell me what I should do. Maybe I should take more risk. Maybe I should take less risk. Why don't you tell me as an advisor? So that's what we do. And so not just providing the online interface, we're changing fundamentally how we're giving the portfolio investment advice to the, to the investors. So like, for example, let's say like, I want to live, I, I think I'm going to live till I'm 100, but I'm scared of taking risk. Well, then whatever portfolio a robo advisor, or financial advisor would put me in probably wouldn't allow me to retire and live until I'm 100, right? And so what you're saying Fingage does differently, you're like, okay, here are the facts. If you want to have enough money to live to be 100 and you're scared of risk, it doesn't matter. Then you're not going to achieve your goal. Here's what you need to do that's to right. achieve your goal. And and the reason, you know, we think this way and that's something I like, uh, you know, listeners to think about is what is risk? Risk of investing should not be that the market maybe went down today a little bit more than tomorrow and the value of my portfolio moved a little up or down. If it's money I'm saving for retirement, it's okay if it moves up and down. Risk primarily is that I get to retirement, as you said, and I don't have enough money or I run out after 10 years and I'm still alive and I don't have enough money. That's the biggest risk. It's not how the money uh, fluctuates in value uh, early in your life. And so we, this is why we don't ask you for a survey. And as you said, we figure out what is the best strategy you should take. If you sound very defensive, I don't like to lose money. 
and then you end up investing in a portfolio of bonds and some cash that will not change much in value very stable you can be sure it will always be there for you but you've kind of locked yourself into low return and after 20 30 years of working despite doing great job working and saving the money didn't work for you you work the money didn't work for you you're gonna potentially find yourself short and this is where if you look at our advice we're going and look at your financial situation and say no this is the risk you should take and obviously if you don't like that because you look at the numbers and you say i either know better or i have other reasons not to follow your advice you can override the advice that we have recommended to, uh, that you follow but we want to do more work for you and help you figure out how much risk you should take. And, and I like to use this analogy. If you're sick, God forbid, you don't go to the doctor and you say, hey, doctor, I'm only open to taking uh, medication through a pill. I will not take an injection and I'm OK with an X-ray, but I will not do an MRI. You don't start the conversation like that. You say, here's, here's my situation. I'm getting pain here. I'm this old. I normally do this in my, in my life. I don't smoke, but I drink, whatever. You give him your, your situation. And then he comes back and he says, this is the medication that you should take to feel better. If you don't take it and you do this, it will probably take you longer time to heal, right? So he, he, he recommends what you should do. He doesn't say, hey, Rishi, how do you feel about, about pills? versus <laughs> injections. And so why are we doing investment as if we're the experts as investors? We should approach investment the same way. I mean, isn't that the point of a financial advisor is to realize where we are not taking care of ourselves or where we're harming ourselves and then for them to come in and help us deal with the uncomfortableness of maybe a higher volatility asset. But you're right. I like your idea of reshaping risk from I'm scared of losing money to I'm not going to meet my goals that I need to live. That's like the real risk. You're absolutely correct. So Mayor, so I've seen across the board with robo-advisors and other financial advisors, fees are coming down across the board. And how does the investor deal with it? And how are firms like Fingage, you know, Fingage.com, for example, for those of you who haven't heard the URL, how do we all deal with this? You know, this is definitely uh, a trend and there's misinformation about um, fees. So let me maybe start by taking a step back and say that the key is transparency. And what I mean by that is as an investor, what you really want to know is what is it that I am paying? How much money in dollars am I paying the fund manager? Am I paying my own advisor? Because in certain cases, some people are paying too much, and that's why you see fees coming down on some funds. And in some cases, the fees are so low that some advisors are telling their clients, I cannot service you anymore. So to put that in perspective, let's take a simple example. Let's assume I went to an advisor and I said, I want you to help me with my portfolio. The person could easily need to spend a couple of hours with me to get down all the information, understand what my objective is, and then he has to go back, turn to his computer, do a lot of calculations, and do, let's say, what we do at Fingeji. Turn back and say, Samer, here's a good portfolio for you. I've done the calculations. This is going to give you this likelihood of you achieving retirement. So the person spent good four or five hours working. Think of how much you pay your carpenter, plumber, the person who repairs your car. Think of how much you pay them an hour and just assume the financial advisor doesn't have necessarily any higher cost to operate. 
you're paying them, let's say, $100 an hour. So the person spent five hours working for you, you're paying them $500. If your account balance is $20,000, that 500 bucks that you paid the advisor is two and a half percent of your money. That's huge. I mean, the average long-term S&P return is 9% a year. So if you lose two and a half percent, that's massive. Exactly. So there is a problem, which is it's a costly, it's, it's quite costly to do a lot of personalized work. And when you don't have a very large balance, it does not add up. You're not happy as an investor giving two and a half percent. And I bet you the advisor is not super excited to work five hours and has a lot of work he has to do uh, legal and cost related to operating the business to just make, let's say, $500. So it's a really tough situation. And this is why we're doing what we're doing, which is technology allows us to do the work for everybody, even the person with a balance as low as a thousand dollars, not just $20,000 and still be okay because technology allows you to scale. Going to an investment advisor is something that you can afford to do with a much larger balance where the $500 or the thousand dollars relative to the big amount of money you have is a small percentage. So I don't want to put the financial advisor just in a negative light really because they're suffering, they're struggling in terms of how do we make this work for everybody? And I think they're realizing as well that technology is the answer. They're adopting technology very fast. There's so many companies today that are creating tools for advisors. And I'm optimistic, Rishi, that in the near future, we're going to see a very happy place where there's transparency. You know exactly what the advisor is going to get paid and it's going to make sense to you. And if the numbers don't make sense, the advisor himself will say, Rishi, today your balance is not high enough. I have the digital tool for you. Obviously, you get richer, you have more money, you have more needs, you have more very custom demands that you want to um, have met by the advisor. And at that point, the advisor will take you on personally, spend more time with you. So I think we're going to move in that world where you start with the technology, where it's cheap to get the advice as you become more sophisticated investor with sophisticated needs the advisor will sit down with you and the fees will make sense for everybody i you know i agree with that like let's say i had a billion dollars i probably wouldn't want to give it all to an algorithm i'd want to speak to a human and so i think you're right that there are these different things it's almost like you know if you go to a clothing store you can buy a suit that's fully off the rack you can buy a suit that's off the rack and then get it tailored or you can buy a fully bespoke everything is measured to you right and there are different costs associated with each but you also get benefits from me that's right I, I agree with you. So, I mean, yeah, I guess ultimately with a fee compression, this term, it sounds like it's for investors, it could be good. But I think what you're saying is far more profound in that it's going to lead to a segmentation of the space, of the financial advising space. That's right. That's right. And and I, I think it's going to be a place where it's going to be good for everybody. The financial advisors will not have to worry about the perception about their fees because it's going to be very clear that this is the fee we're going to charge you in a transparent upfront way. And then the investor will be happy because he knows why he is getting the technology solution only versus the personal solution. And choice is always good, right? We all want to know what we are offer then choose what we think is best you know and, and i don't want this to be i mean even though this is kind of happening like you know and i and i only recommend uh products in which i believe in but the one thing i will say about fingage to continue to compliment you is that uh what you said about transparency i really appreciate and i think that's one thing where 
I sort of like your platform over platforms like Betterment and, and such. Um, and, you know, I don't, not to speak about them negatively, it's not like that. It's just more like, I know that on your site, you get incredible transparency. You know, you show everything from the allocation to the graphs, the exact funds, and then also exactly what you need to do. And, and you allow the individual to sort of take control, to, to, to provide that middle ground. And uh, I also like how you work with the existing parameters, right? You're not like only adopt FinGage's parameters. You're like, here are the parameters your 401k gives you. And here's the best decision you can make within these parameters, within these funds, with, you know, within your goals. And I, you know, I do um, sort of want to shift the conversation a bit, you know, as we talk, talk about parameters, you know, what variables does FinGage or what variables does a financial advisor used to determine these allocations, to determine how much. Some people say age is a good parameter. Like, what do you recommend? You know, age is an important parameter. It's dangerous when people use age only, um, such as a common product you see on 401k plans called target date. You see these funds with a year at the end of them. You'll see 2020, 2035. And those tend to be where if you plan to retire in 2035, you put your money in the 2035 fund. So with those, the concern is if you and I, Rishi, are the same age, we are going to get the same fund. And if the advisor is using age only to determine what to recommend to us, we'll get the same recommendation. But let's consider the situation. You've been a very successful person in your career. You had a great first 20 years in your life. And so let's say by the time you're 20, uh, 43, You've made a ton of money and now you're just making very little on the side, but you've made all your money. And let's say I've been a goofball the first 20 years of my career and here I am 23, uh, excuse me, 43 years old and very little money to my name. If we're looking at age, they'll say Rishi and Samer are the same age, they get the same thing. But because you've made a lot of money and now you're taking it easy, you're not making as much, you should invest your existing wealth more defensively then I should because I have very little wealth and I clearly need to work a lot longer and my money is going to come from contributions to my wealth. So I should take more risk. You should take less risk. In other words, I should have more equities, less fixed income. You should have more fixed income, less equity. When you look at age only, you ignore that and that's a risk. So what I would say is what you want is that your advisor will look at how many more years you want to work. How much are you saving? What's your salary, how much money you're going to need in retirement. You want him to do that. And this is what we try to do for everybody at Fingage is just let's understand the facts about your financial situation and we'll create a portfolio that expected to maximize your income at retirement and minimize the risk of running out of money. So, you know, and I, and I think like not even just going to the example of, you know, 20 years from now, I think that there are a lot of people who are graduating college and recent graduates and some maybe went to a school where they, they had to take on a lot of debt. And then you had some students who may have gone to a school where they didn't have to pay as much and they don't have student debt. Well, you're right. If you just look at age, there are different ways to handle that. Like people may be in different financial positions or people may go to grad school and their earnings may be delayed for another. Like, you know, if you go to med school, for example, you have four years of med school, three years of residency. And if you do a fellowship, it's even more. So it may be like a decade from when you start med school till you're making money. So I, I, I love that idea of considering your earnings potential. You know, and I think another good example is you know, this kind of hits home uh, for those, you know, and I try to avoid sports analogies because I feel like they're very common in finance and it, I kind of roll my eyes every time I hear about them. But, you know, it's March Madness. 
uh, I went to UVA. Virginia was a number one seed. Lost uh, to a number 16 seed. Yes, I know. But you see something when players, like, let's say you're ahead by 20 points. You play defensively. You hold the ball as long as possible. Try to wind down the clock so the game ends and the other team who's down has less of a chance of coming back, right? Your, your, your play style almost changes depending upon the circumstances because you accept not everything is equal. And I think what you're saying is the age, the target dates, assumes everything is equal. The only difference between people is age. That's right. That's a great analogy. That's that, that's probably one of the best analogies to explain <laughs> what I was trying to say. Exactly right. Uh, UVA <laughs> losing in the first round. That was a that was a hard uh, pill to swallow. <laughs> I'll say that. I feel for you. <laughs> anyway, let's move on from reliving that moment. Um, I, I want to ask you, like, what's something that you see the biggest mistake people make today? Like whether they're a recent graduate just starting to make money or somebody who's maybe in their 40s or 50s, what's a mistake you see common that is easy enough for us to fix? You know, uh, one of the biggest mistakes I see is people delay starting uh, to save. They delay that start. They say, I'll start when I'm a little older. I'll start when I'm 40 or, or I have plenty of time. And the reality is you do not have plenty of time and you should start as soon as possible because there's another mistake people do. In general, you find that if you've had a great career, let's say early on in life, let's say you joined a, <clears throat> a company at age 25, you're, paying, you're being paid very good money, you extrapolate, you assume that, oh boy, I got to raise every year in the past five, six years. So I'm going to keep getting a raise for the rest of my career or my income has been rising at this rate. It's going to continue like this for the rest of my career. So I have plenty of time to save. And what you see is the national average, the, the statistics that tell you what happens to a person's age over time, tell a very different story. In general, our incomes tend to grow a lot when we first start working uh, into our 40s. But once we hit 50s and after, our incomes tend to grow lower than everybody else. So think of it like we lose ground. We gain a lot of ground early on in our career and then we lose ground. And so there's a false sense of, of optimism that people have, which is I'm doing great now. It will continue like that. And as a result, they say, oh, plenty of time. I'll start saving in the next couple of years. And while I hope everybody experiences that, the average person sees a slowdown in their career. They hit a couple of bumps. Uh, they might lose a job. They might have a couple of years where they're looking for a job. And that's one of the biggest reasons to say you got to start saving from the minute you have an income, if possible. And even every little bit makes sense, meaning people make the mistake and they think this is a big project. Unless I can save $10,000 a year and have a big plan to saving, it's not worth doing. No, it is. Even a couple of hundred bucks that you can put aside a year, even if you could put $50 a month by being a little bit careful. Over time, if invested well, that $50 a month can be quite a bit of money. And I almost feel like it's a little bit addicting once you start doing it. It's hard to do because you probably have to have all this paperwork. You have to, to register, for example, your platform, Fingage.com. You do all of these things. But I feel like once you get started, it almost becomes an addiction, but an addiction that's good for you. It's like going to the gym. You know, it's hard to get your foot in the door. But once you start going, if you go consistently for a week, you feel weird not going, right? And I think once you see the money growing in your retirement, you're like, ooh, how do I add more? How do I add more? At least that's how I felt. That's right. That's a, 
it's that uh, uh, gratification you get from seeing the money grow could be just as good as the gratification you see from spending that money on a, on a new on a new gadget or whatever you know so you can get just as much excitement like you said from knowing that i have more money in in my account uh, it, it's, it can be a very rewarding yeah, especially feeling. when it starts growing without you even touching anything it's like your money's now working for you rather than you working for money and so right. um you know kind of like stepping out and I, I, this might be a, a weird question but just something i'm curious to hear your answer about you know what is something somebody can do outside of investing in funds to improve their retirement to improve their security as as they get older and as they prepare for retirement you know, the cost of housing is a very large component in what we spend money on. So outside of investing in funds and saving money, I think um, purchasing a home, uh, making mortgage payments so that by the time you are retired, you no longer have mortgage payments. This is one thing that can make a very large difference for you um, as, a, as, a, as a person planning for retirement. Having a place to live in without much uh, cost related to it helps. Obviously, you have to maintain your home. You have to spend uh, some money on it. But not having mortgage payments when you hit retirement is a big, big, big help. Um, the other thing, and, and maybe this is, I'm not in a position to give that advice, but I think one of the big expenses that people face in retirement is health costs. These are really big, and this is where you get a lot of times uh, an, an, an unknown, uh, a surprise. And so staying healthy, and again, I, I feel funny saying that because I'm not a health professional, but staying healthy is one of the best retirement planning tools because that means in retirement, you won't have as many expenses to take care of your health, which can be you know, quite I feel large. like there are a lot of health conditions, you know, some of them we can't control, but I feel like there are certain things where they arise because we didn't, it's not something we did a week ago. It's a series of decisions we've made over decades. You know, I do believe that, like I said, there are things that they come up and they're genetic or there are things that we can't control happening. But I do also think that there are portions that, you know, by living a healthy lifestyle, you're absolutely right that we can help mitigate. It's like mitigating risk. It's the reason I've still stuck to my 2018 resolution of, of hitting the gym. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's the, that's a good way of putting it. It's just a way to mitigate risk because it's uh, it tends to be a large, uh, not just component that people spend money on, but it's where you get a lot of uncertainty. You know, you, you think you've planned and you've saved for a certain lifestyle and then medical conditions can completely change that. And so trying to be as healthy as possible is one uh, factor that helps. There, there's this really good uh, Bollywood movie that I, I watch. It's on Netflix. It's called uh, OMG. And it's uh, with this famous Indian actor, Akshay Kumar. And, um, I, you know, there, there's this uh, there's this Indian reform movement almost happening uh, with religion in India, which is really interesting. You're seeing a lot of movies come out that that talk about the the corruptness of religion and things that we can do, like what religion is. And like we see it in every country, you know, like a faith will say love, but the actions people do are different. And and one quote that they say is like, you know, a man can only give 100% or man or woman can only give 100%. The rest is up to God. And I really like that quote because if I know I'm giving 100%, well, you know, you're doing the best you can. And the rest is like, you can't control. And I feel like with things like that, you're right. Like with health, it's like, you know, are you giving your 100%? Because if you are, it's like, okay, if something happens, okay, well, there's nothing we could do about it. But we can do other things to prepare for that. Like what you're saying with saving money and retirement. I think that that sort of has helped me out a lot. But um, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and teaching us, you know, what is for 
problem, okay, what do these robo-advisors do? Because I think we've all been hearing a lot about them in the media. And, uh, you know, it's going to be really helpful. And I know it's helped a lot of people already and listeners. So again, the website is Fingage. Uh, Samir's app is called Fingage. And the URL is F-I-N-G-A-G-E.com. And Samir, what's a good email address that somebody could contact you at? Uh, they can uh, obviously send email to support at fingage.com or they could email me directly at samer.hubble at fingage.com. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, we are a digital advisor, so we don't give investment advice by email, but we can help people set an account on fingage.com. We can talk to their employer and offer our services to their 401k account and we're always happy to help and we appreciate feedback, comments, questions, uh, whatever people have, encourage them to contact me or contact the support at fingage.com. Yeah, and that's uh, S-A-M-E-R dot H-A-B-L at F-I-N-G-A-G-E dot com. That's your email address. That's right. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Samir, for, for being on the show with us. And I don't want to take too much more of your time, but uh, any parting words? Um, encourage people to be proactive about saving, be proactive about planning for retirement. And uh, this has been wonderful. I really appreciate the opportunity to do this podcast. Thank you, Rishi, for having me. Of course. All right, everyone. Have a great rest of the day. And uh, if you have any questions for Tingo, you can reach out to me at R-I-S-H-I at T-I-I-N-G-O dot com. All right, everyone. Have a great day.